Well, I, th I thought in talking to Dr. Marshall McLuhan, uh, I feel I must steal a, a gag of his during a speech of his recently at Carbondale University during a seminar, Seminar 65. I think about the world today, and if I were to ask questions of Dr. McLuhan, I feel like the mosquito in the nudist colony you talked about. Where do I begin? <laughs> or as Dr. McLuhan says, the French actor on the stage kissing a lady's hand. You have to begin somewhere. <laughs> and so if we could keep this rather than question answer, I think in the manner of Dr. McLuhan's whole approach to life, that we're bombarded by so many of the media, and that man has reached a stage today, what's the phrase Dr. McLuhan uses? In the electric age, we all wear mankind. All of mankind is our skin. And no. Buckminster Fuller, whom Dr. McLuhan admires, as do indeed a great many of us, says there's no room in the world today. It's too dangerous a world for anyone but a utopian. Suppose we begin this way, Dr. McLuhan, with, with the student. Here we are at Kendall College. And uh, you said something about the student lives in the 20th century world, yet he enters a classroom that is 19th century. Well, we talk about a population explosion when what has happened is that space has disappeared. That is, the spaces between people. There used to be room. Now there's no space between people. It isn't that there are more people. There's less room. Much, much less room. And, uh, and yet the, the, that 19, the, uh, uh, the phrase, population explosion, is a nice 19th century rearview mirror. We're looking at the wrong phenomenon. What is it then should we be looking at? I mean, we hear so much talk about man being desensitized, being uh, more and more of a conformist because of mass media, whereas uh, you're taking a more refreshing point of view. Well, I should say that, uh, the, the, again, the conformity is a nice rearview mirror view of man. One thing that is not happening at the present time is conformism. Uh, there is more diversity, more rebellion, and uh, more crazy new modes and patterns than now than there, than there was in the 19th century or in the uh, 1920s. The, um, in the 1920s, when everybody was rushing into town, into the big town from the rural areas, they had every reason in the world to conform. They uh, were so delighted with the new excitement of the big city, they were only too happy to conform. But in the same way, um, People who live in a visual culture uh, tend to uh, live by conformity. People who live in an auditory culture or a non-visual culture, and Bucky Fuller, by the way, is often pointing out that uh, in the electric age, you live in a non-visual world. You can't uh, visualize a DNA particle, you, even though Walt Disney tries to help us. You can't visualize uh, electrons. You can't visualize electric currents. You can't visualize any of the things that are going on in our new world. Uh, you have to play them by ear. You have to uh, get in touch with them by other means. And so uh, the, all these metaphors and accusations that are made about people as if they were still going on in the old pattern of conformity uh, pays very little attention to what is actually happening. For example, in the age of the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones in the age of, uh, what, what do we say, uh, miniskirts. Um, where is the conformity? Uh, do you, 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 yourself, do you find any evidences of conformity? Well, I'm bothered by a, uh, a couple of phenomena of our time. Even though you say we're not living in a visual culture, you're, you're, you're speaking of the fact that uh, so much is happening to our ears, so much is happening to our minds. And at speeds that, that yeah. you cannot visualize. Uh, you cannot visualize the uh, events uh, the, uh, uh, that are going on in outer space and so on at the present time. You know, if I could use, perhaps this may be a rather stupid question, if we just, a visual phenomenon 
That is more than what you say television. And, and I'll raise this question. No. This is one you've asked many times, no. I know, by many pedants, many pedantic minds. Uh, the question of, uh, isn't man being a conformist or tend to that because of the control of TV by few and man being fed the continuous banal situation comedies and thinking no. just one That's way? That's what you say. I simply point out. Yeah. It takes a long time to explain it, but uh, I simply point out TV is not a visual medium. The movies were. Uh, TV extends the hands, uh, the scanning fingers of TV gropes out, reaches around the world, and handles everything. It doesn't, fo there's no camera. On TV, there's no shutter. It doesn't take pictures. It handles the world. The movie uh, camera actually extended the eyes and took pictures. TV doesn't take pictures. It handles the world. It gropes, it, gr it grasps the world. And the TV child uh, wants to, well, you know, he, he gets, he tries to get inside the book page. He holds it so close to him, he's trying to get inside. He doesn't sit back and look at the page anymore. Uh, it's pathetic, but uh, they do try to get inside the book. I have a friend in New York at uh, the Something Else Press who has built a book that you can get inside. It, it's uh, nine feet high and uh, has eight foot square pages, and they are on a great big spine made of uh, four inch pipe and you can swing the pages open and climb inside each page. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, called, it's called the big book. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, the something, Dick Higgins at the Something Else uh, Press. And uh, I once read a phrase on an exam, uh, a student wrote, I was glued to the page from cover to cover. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, could have been. Uh, Dr. McLuhan, uh, coming back to this question of participate, here, here's someone who wants to participate, actually, to get into the book. Uh, you are throughout, whether it's understanding media or some of your talks, the man is more a participant today yeah. and less the observer. And this is contrary to what is the general opinion. Well, the observer meaning the detached, the uh, detached observer. objective person. People are more and more inclined to uh, empathize, to project themselves into situations to feel. Uh, this, by the way, is one we haven't even brought it up. Uh, ecumenism, the liturgical movement. Uh, all the churches in varying degrees are more concerned with getting their congregations inside the role of worship and of action. Well, our acting methods, our, our theater, our, uh, all of these uh, areas, uh, psychiatry is a, an inside job. It's getting inside situations. And uh, it isn't spinning theories uh, about uh, 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 just, uh, it's not much help for a psychiatrist to have a point of view. Uh, he has to get inside the case and uh, structurally uh, feel the patterns and processes. But you raise this point, uh, Dr. Moore, point of view, and I know this some of your detractors say, well, you mm -hmm. are copping out. That is, say that you mm -hmm. offer no value judgments. Mm -hmm. And say, you are merely describing what is, isn't that it? You are not saying this is what you believe. I'm, I'm concerned with the processes. I'm not concerned with a fixed position from which to observe the uh, panorama. No, I want to get inside the process. When you are uh, swimming, you don't have a point of view. Uh, uh, to survive, isn't that a point of view? Uh, uh, when you're, when you're uh, swimming, uh, survival requires an uh, active uh, process. Uh, uh, there isn't any point of view that enables you to survive as a swimmer. Uh, when you're in, uh, when you're in any kind of situation, 
This is, of course, one of the horrors, say, of the newspaper profession. They will approach people who are in the middle of some horrible experience and ask them how they feel about it. Uh, you know, what's your point of view on this sort of suffering? Uh, there's a clash of media, you see, in which uh, the people deeply involved in some situation are suddenly expected to be uninvolved and to report to the newspaper what it feels like. Um, this is happening now on a, globe, on a uh, kind of big population scale. The whole population is simultaneously involved and asked to be not involved, to this, be detached. This is the dilemma, isn't it, uh, the question of you point out the two tramps in waiting for Godot standing by Didi and Gogo waiting. Yeah. At the same time, you're pointing out because of uh, mass media, because of electronics, because of the triple revolution, man is one village now. Well, yeah, so yeah, we so have to be involved whether we want to or oh, not. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, it, indeed. It's a, uh, it's a shared experience uh, that uh, has nothing to do with our choices. Uh, the, uh, we didn't ask for it. Uh, we didn't plan it. And um, you know the old, it's, it's strange, isn't it? The old idea was that if you, uh, the more you understand a people, the more you like them, the better you get on with them. This doesn't correspond to the experience of people who live under the same roof, does it? Uh, where did the idea ever come from that, uh, that if you only knew an awful lot about people, you'd uh, automatically love them? Um, our, much of our publicity and uh, much of our repertorial enterprises are based on this idea. If we could only get closer to people, we would uh, I, I like them so much better. I don't think there's any evidence of this. Uh, that's, uh, the difficulty of people living under the same roof is that they're far too close and they know far too much about each other to be happy. I suppose the word is not liking them better as understanding them better. Yeah, I but, suppose that uh, would be when it. You, then you hate them too. If you, uh, uh, nobody wants to be understood because uh, then they know the show was up. The game was up. <laughs> so it's, all, it's over with now, that's sure. If we come back uh, oh, there's a question? Oh, oh let's, is, is that all right if we do this in a very unorthodox mosaic rather than linear? Move we'll it this way. Field. Uh, field. field. Play the field. A question from uh, a student. I have several questions. Well, keep it one, no, for now. I've never been able to understand the expression out, way out in left field. It seems to me a highly favored uh, spot. All right-handed hitters hit out into left field. Yeah. A very good place for anybody to be. Well, that, that's why he's kept pretty busy out there, too, as a result. But the way out, it's interesting, by the way, before this question, uh, what, is refreshing, what is refreshing, I think, about Professor McLuhan, he, he's always asking something we accept without asking, like phrases. In the book, you may, you may point out, give me a rain check on it, when someone wants to meet that person, and as though it were an athletic event. So way out in left field, we have a question from way out in center field. Yes, sir, sorry. Bonanza will do. The future of the future is the present. And uh, so anybody who can come to grips with the present is uh, quite capable of understanding what's going to happen for quite a while to come. 
most of the things that are going to happen in the next 50 years are happening right now and we just can't recognize them. Only the artist has this power to recognize events while they're still uh, in action before they have had a chance to declare themselves to the ordinary person. Suppose, pardon me, could we hold the questions after we finish this sort of uh, conversation? Because this is that's an interesting question, right? I'd like just to, perhaps for the sake of the audience on the radio that didn't attend this morning's session, we're broadcasting this from Kendall College. And uh, the question is one that I'm sure is asked Professor McLuhan very often about content and, and the medium itself, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That the, the medium is of now, but the content is often of a prior prior century or or, the, or the preceding uh, the preceding technology the old technology becomes the content of the new one the content of automation is the old card catalogs and the old retrieval systems that speed it up uh, from the beginning of uh, neolithic or specialist history man the planter the specialist uh, this tended to happen that uh, progress in technology tended to be the application of new power to old tools that you can almost write the history of Western technology as simply increasing applications of power to old tools that had been found, uh, uh, like the wheel, that uh, had been discovered thousands of years earlier. Uh, I think with the coming of the electric circuit, this changed. It was not an old tool uh, merely being given a new treatment. The electric circuit was a real new invention, the first uh, real new invention since the wheel in human history. Uh, all the other inventions were just variants of wheel or lever or hammer or something like that. But the electric circuit was a new invention, the first in maybe 12,000 years. And because of this electric circuit then, if we could perhaps ask you this another way, Professor McLuhan, yesterday's reality became today's art form, like in, we know oh, on, no. in camp, isn't that so? The grandmother's, grandmother's old dress is today something oh. Uh, quite uh, can't be. Now we were talking about the co new comic book cult. Yeah, comic book. Cult. Uh, this morning, uh, the uh, sudden discovery of value in hearing in old objects, coach lamps, old old cars, old old clothes, old uh, comic books, old anything. Um, this uh, what would you call that type of retrospective nostalgic view? You know, nostalgia in general for the old times. Oh, uh, there's a phrase in James Joyce. Pastimes, meaning games, are past times. That all human games take the form of doing something in an art situation which had formerly been done in a uh, realistic way. Uh, I think this applies to baseball and uh, most of the uh, games we know. Is, uh, this, is this what you mean when you say the Middle Ages is the late show of the Renaissance? Uh, the game chess, you see, was called, used to be called Le Chasse Royale and was an attempt to uh, carry out in a, uh, in a game pattern the hunt, the royal hunt, as in the patterns that it used in the forest. Uh, games pastimes are past times. Fox hunting was the real thing. It was the way, may, way man gained his livelihood a few years earlier. Well, doesn't this raise a disturbing question, Professor McLuhan, this matter of and then content? Are you implying that content of TV or content of a new medium is something of a past time. And is used as a distraction uh, to keep us uh, unaware of the uh, uncomfortable pressures of the new environmental force, yes. But isn't there a new content with a new uh, medium? Well, the new content in the sense that you never paid any attention to it when it was, a, when it the was, old. The old, when it was an old environment. You, people never pay, 
People never paid any attention to movies until TV came in. Then the movie became, as with Bergman and Fellini and so on, an art form. On the other hand, it took on this much character of TV. They uh, destroyed the storyline. You see, TV doesn't have a storyline. Um, and it gave some of its character the, uh, to the new movie forms. And uh, the, the newspaper doesn't have a storyline. And uh, uh, the, this never noticed until TV. I know one of your colleagues, Eric Barno, did raise this question. It's a provocative one, I know, for Marshall McLuhan. Uh, he, uh, Barno was challenging you. He says, there is new contest. For example, when Southern whites saw on television uh, the march from, say, Selma to Montgomery, they saw something that was quite new in their experience. They had never seen this kind of integrated uh, phenomenon. Were, they were beginning to participate in their own audience participation. But what they really saw under those conditions was that you cannot segregate or sectionalize or classify mankind. Uh, when under electric instantaneous conditions, uh, a classification of human populations and segregation won't work. Uh, it doesn't uh, matter whether it's desirable or undesirable, it just won't work. And uh, so our own children will not accept classification as children. Our children regard themselves as adults and second, third-rate adults, just, and they uh, empathize with Negroes. That is, they regard themselves as deprived uh, third-rate citizens. And uh, so they don't sympathize with Negroes, they identify with Negroes. But women uh, regard themselves as cut off from a great deal of the world that, they, that should by rights be theirs and so on. So they have the same attitude of uh, wish for desegregation. But this applies to the other cultures of the world. It's, we've got to a position where you cannot even segregate uh, distant cultures like uh, Cambodia or China. They insist now on being part of world culture simultaneously with our own. We have to live with them just as much as we do with baseball. We now have to live with Russian cultural change just as much as we do with Southern cultural change. I suppose you might say they insist upon being part of world culture, but need not be our specific culture. Yeah. Uh, this, of course, is the yeah. point we have to face here in our society. Uh, Dr. McLuhan, you spoke of the child. This is rather interesting. Earlier, the artist, uh, in, your, um, in your work and in your lectures, about the delinquent child really often is a very more creative child than the goody-goody well, child yes. because the classroom hasn't yeah. kept up with his work. Well, the child, the delinquent child, is crossing boundaries and, and, uh, and uh, sort of feeling his way. He's trying to discover the world he lives in. But any child, any infant in growing up is constantly crossing boundaries somewhat uh, dangerously, it just as a means of exploring the world he lives in. Uh, the artist, the criminal, the saint, they're all delinquents in the sense that they're non-social, anti-social types who are constantly exploring the world they live in. Uh, they're not, they don't follow the ground rules. They won't obey the, uh, the rules of the game. And so the Bogarts and the artists and uh, the uh, saints all refuse to play the ordinary uh, suburban rules, shall we say. I suppose the popularity of Bogart, and ob obviously tremendous popular with the younger generation sort of hip, is that very reason that he was, what, a sort of outlaw at the same time, a good-hearted, but not carrying his heart on his sleeve outlaw. And, and intelligent, a man of perception. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. The um, mixture of delinquency and high, high perception uh -huh. and so on, and high idealism, you know, the idealist always tends to be a little delinquent, doesn't he? He's always crossing boundaries. So the artist then, the artist would be the, the symbol of it. He then challenges, he is the outlaw of society. He challenges society. Yep, the enemy. He is always Francois Villon then. 
the artist is. Well, in that case, then, is a point that bothers me. You spoke of a new kind of artist, the, organi the, organi the organized, organization artist, the man of Madison who must be considered. Can he be part of the organization and be an artist? This is the question that disturbs me. Well, I'm not sure. That, do you, do you, you, did you say Madison Avenue? Madison what? what? Which kind of man are you referring to again? No, you spoke of somewhere about the organ, in one of a lecture, I think I heard a soundtrack of one, of the organized artist. The organization artist must be considered as an important uh, I'm not sure. Do, now, do you mean the organization man uh, as artist? The organization man as artist? Well, let's say the guy who does copy or the guy who does ads or whatever. Well, you see, uh, his, his job is uh, really to, uh, to institute a, a, a new environmental design. Uh, the PR man is constantly building environments um, for enterprises. The, uh, the sort of person who sets out to build images, the old uh, term, for a whole uh, enterprises uh, to uh, improve the image of a political party or to improve the image of a product. He has to be an artist. He has to make something. He shapes. He makes. And he makes in accordance not just with some inner impulse, but with, in a, with a, a complete awareness of the sort of effect he wants to obtain on his audience. The artist, you see, works. It was uh, Edgar Allan Poe who startled the world with the theory that the artist should work starting from the effect he wants to have. He shouldn't just make something. He should uh, first decide on the effect he wants to have, then make something that will have that effect and no other effect. This uh, startled many people. Most people had thought of the artist as merely uh, bubbling over with inner impulse, like the skylark or something. And uh, the idea that the artist was a deliberate workman who uh, understood his audience so well that he could estimate the effects of his work in advance, this uh, soured many people on the artist. But the artist of the um, symbolist and uh, 20th century schools have all worked on this assumption. You start with the effect you want to have, and then you make something that will have that effect. By the way, what we call, I guess it was Whitehead who said, the great discovery of the 19th century was the discovery of the technique of invention. The technique of invention is to start with what you want to invent, and then ask now, what steps do we have to take in order to arrive at that invention and nothing else? So you start first with the invention, and then you go back and analyze the steps that lead to that. Well, this is the way, uh, this is the mass production technique of any product. If you want to mass produ produce these mics or this glass, that's how you do it. You start first with the glass. Then you go back through all the steps that would be necessary to implement it and to produce it automatically. But artists work this way. But he's not really an artist, then, according to your original definition of being a challenger of the society, because he serves it. Well, See, he's not, then we alter the definition just, of an no, Just a moment. The, uh, uh, the, art, the artist, by the, what makes the artist uh, unique is that he has, he is the discoverer of a special new effect, a new sound, a new line, a new rhythm. In this respect, by the way, something was mentioned this morning, but we never got to discuss it, the Watusi, or the Frug. As for dance forms, I was thinking of art. As dance forms, they revolutionize the old concept of dancing. The old dance floor, the, where people uh, waltzed or foxtrotted or went through repetitive motions, 
was a continuum and the dances that were performed were repetitive and blueprinted, as it were. The Watusi and the Frug and all these uh, current forms are, and this is what I wanted to bring out apropos of that conformist. You see, it's the waltz and the foxtrot that are completely conformist forms of dancing. The Watusi and the Frug are completely original nonconformist, in which each individual makes his own space. He doesn't share the space on the floor with anybody else. And you cannot ask anybody in the middle of a, such a dance for the next dance. <laughs> there is no next dance, and there is no way in to their world. You can't ask for the next dance. And doing the Watusi, then, he's a, he's a solo dancer. Well, he's making a space. Talk about territoriality. He's making his own space. He is not using a uh, dance floor at all. He's just creating space. And now this is supposed to be totally expressive, expressionist. And people call it conformist. When the waltz and the old foxtrots way back when, they were the conformist dances. The new dances are totally nonconformist. My only uh, bothersome thought about the Watusi is not the Watusi, but I remember originally seeing on the west side of Chicago in the black ghetto the little kids skipping rope and doing it. But it's used, though, in our jet, by our jet set, though, I would not say in a unique way. I mean, uh, would you say that they are original, our jet setters? Well, it's uh, very difficult to perform any of those, uh, to simulate any of those movements without um, being considerably original. Uh, have you ever tried them? <laughs> no, oh, I oh. can't. <laughs> well, I've tried can't dance, can't ride a bike, can't swim, can't do nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm the non-participant who talks. That's the trouble, you see. We talk about the participating figure. Uh, Dr. McLuhan uh, hit something very interesting here about the dances that occurred to me. And perhaps you'd care to comment about this. A young member of the, of the birds, and the birds have lost by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, was saying when asked the question, perhaps uh, I know this is right in your matter of the importance of popular arts and, and the idiom of our day telling us so much. How come some of the kids don't hear the words of your songs? He says, doesn't matter. He says, it's the, it's the words, it's the electronic instrument, it's the light, it's what we are. It's an overall, he spoke of an overall vibration. Happening. You uh -huh. see, what is called a happening is not any one sound or any one event. It's a complete environment of events. It's just like a newspaper page where there are a multitude of little uh, items contribute to creating one happening. Uh, September. 2021 is a happening in the newspaper. It has no storyline. There is no sequence of events. It is a total pattern, a happening, and all at once, oh, they all happen under the same date line at the same time. A happening is an all at once affair, uh, and it has the strange, mysterious power of involving people, whereas a storyline, uh, may or may not involve people. It may grab some and not others, but the happening is an environment shared by everybody, and uh, it gets everybody. Then this would be connected, though, wouldn't with your thought about the press, the book. If we use these phrases, linear mosaic, use that. The book then is something that B follows A because of the nature of the press. C follows uh, B. It's something, there's a sequence to it, and the person looks at this, and he By doesn't have, and, and whereas the age we live in is something much more wild than this. It's peculiar, uh, the detective story has a peculiar character in this respect. 
that the uh, sequence of events is deliberately scrambled in order to involve the audience. An ordinary novel just follows step by step. The episodes are sequential. But Edgar Allan Poe invented the detective story, and he discovered if you really want to involve the audience, pull out the storyline and make the reader create his own storyline as he goes. And there are people who read the last pages of a detective story first, that sort of thing. I, I never tried it that way. But I never read a, a detective story myself for the story, but only for the atmosphere. I would never dream of skipping a word in a detective story because I want the atmosphere. Whereas in a, a serious book, a learned tome, I read every other page. Uh, in order to stay wide awake. You see, if you read every page, you're sound asleep in 15 minutes. Uh, the, the sequential effect of reading line by line, page by page, is somnolence. You're always saying, now what was he saying back there? You try it as an experiment. By the way, the teachers of speed reading don't understand this, but to their own surprise, they've discovered that when they increase the reading speed of people, their memory improves. The people who read very fast remember much more. Well, this, every, anybody pressed at examination time has learned this, but never understood why. Uh, but, you see, if you read every other page, you have to fill in a great deal as you go. <laughs> this keeps you right on your toes. It's a hell of a thing to say at students at a college. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm recommending it not as a practice, but as an experiment. And I discovered it by chance in only uh, recent years. But I can read a 400-page book, a serious tome, say Lonely Crowd, something like that. I can read it in half an hour with making an index as I go of cross-page references in, say, 40 minutes. Whereas if I read every other page, I would have to give up after an hour and go back to it again and so on. But literally, I can go through a 400-page serious tome in a few minutes and remember the passages vividly, quote them weeks later, and so on. And so it's a godsend to make this discovery because you not only read fast, you read much more profoundly and deeply than you do otherwise. Now, this is not the way to read poetry. This is not the way to read um, uh, detective stories, unless you're reading for the story. If you're reading for the atmosphere, you want every word just to keep that atmosphere intact. That's why you read in a poem. You're reading for total effect. You're not reading for storyline. In a poem, you're reading for total effect, therefore every word, every nuance is important. This matter of filling in the gaps, though, perhaps this leads to the phrase, that this you'd call the cool approach in a way, rather than the hot approach. Of well, the cool means involvement, yes. yeah. and uh, the hot means objectivity, non-involvement. Yeah. Perhaps uh, just before we have questions, I know there are some questions forthcoming on the matter of hot and cool. And you, you notice that in a very refreshing way, Professor McLuhan uses phrases, we accept one way and a wholly different approach is used. You accept the slang and the idiom of our day as the truth of our day. So if something cool... You can't, well the point is this, yeah. nobody will use a phrase like putting me on or cool, hot and cool or any slang phrase, nobody will use it unless it fits some really profound part of their lives. You can't sell slang to people. Uh, they use it because they need it. And they discard it very quickly as soon as its need has uh, slackened. Uh, but at any given moment, it takes you close to the heart of uh, new perception. Not private. Oh, slang is not a private form of expression. It's corporate. And leads you to quite significant uh, areas of awareness. But 
Also, if uh, teachers would stop abusing the slang users and insist rather that they uh, learn how to write it properly, uh, they'd have no more trouble. They'd stop uh, using slang right away as soon as they were asked to use it correctly in compositions. By the way, have you noticed nobody ever made a mistake in slang? Only in written forms of discourse is it possible to make a grammatical error. Nobody ever used slang incorrectly. It would be ridiculous. I remember Professor Gilson saying, and now we come to the brass tacks. And um, having no clue as to what the phrase meant. Uh, but uh, no, no, no child ever made a, a grammatical uh, mistake in the use of slang. Why? Because it's auditory and involves total response. Whereas you ask him to write out slang, and no, I don't think many of, many of us could write slang correctly. We'd make the most awful bloopers. But uh, in the same way, in primitive societies, there are no grammatical mistakes. A, a non-literate society never made a grammatical error because they never heard one. <laughs> it's only when anthropologists come in with their uh, inept, inexperience with the language that any mistakes in that language ever had happened before in the history of the language. Then the natives begin to get suspicious and paranoid, and they, they look at these people and think they're putting us, you're putting us on. Yeah, you're putting us on. So this raises a question about cool and hot and the two media, radio and TV. And if I could be devil's advocate for, for a moment, you describe as radio as being the hot medium, and TV involves man more as a cool medium. It's as simple as this. Yeah. Radio you can use as background. You cannot use telephone as background, and you cannot use TV as background the way you can radio. A hot medium is sufficiently neutral or detached to be background material, uh, like music. Whereas uh, the uh, uh, cool media demands so much of your attention, you can't use them as background. But I was thinking of radio not as background. For example, say we call, I hate to use the phrase, editorial comment, good radio or bad radio. But for example, since it's auditory only and not sight as well as sound, I'm listening to, say, Under Milkwood, BBC to Under Milkwood. And if it's just my ear alone, my mind has to envision the people of these villages. Therefore, I'm more involved than if I saw it on TV and saw it as well as heard it, wouldn't I? So wouldn't it be just the reverse? I'm going to think about that one. All right. Because I'm just curious about the, about, uh, at the same time, I see Dr. McLuhan's point about the fact that when it's used as a background, awesome. as indeed it is music, Muzak. Could we have some questions and then perhaps back and forth again? I'm Are you up to it, I'm Dr. McLuhan? Oh, yeah, I'm up to it, but I'm supposed to be uh, elsewhere very soon. <laughs> All right. Let's have another... Another question or two. Another, another question or two. Uh, uh, the lady, the gentleman, uh, were you there? Uh, if we could get that mic. Uh, wait, try it again with the mic there. I have a, some, a question about something that came up this morning, probably a question of definition of terms, which we always have to deal with. Uh, you said this morning that the uh, pre-Judo, pre-Christian man was more involved with natural forces, perhaps through rain dances, mm. whereas when the Judo-Christian ethic arose, uh, we became less involved with natural forces. You then went on to say that in today's world, man has become more involved with natural forces. Once more. Once more. Uh, I sort of question that because it seems to me that although specialists are involved in natural forces, that is the air conditioning expert can come in and make you cooler, the average person, including the average scientist, becomes less and less aware of natural forces and is more protected from them and um, has less to do with them. 
You've noticed the uh, Elm disease, a nice product of natural science. It was a result of exper scientific experimentation that they hit upon this uh, uh, unfortunate disease, uh, which they've not been able to stop since. But the, um, the kinds of science that uh, have been released in the world since the electric age uh, don't permit any sort of detachment. And they are environmental, total new environments that now go around the old natural environment. The old natural environment has now become the content of a man-made one. In the elect, this is Deschardin's theme in Phenomenon of Man, uh, that the man's uh, nervous system now goes around the world and not only contain, embraces man, but the whole of nature. We have put our own nerves outside as a as an, as an man-made environment, as an environment of information that involves us totally, uh, more than uh, nature ever did. Now, in the um, case of the astronauts, they have to take the planet with them in order to survive. We have now had to build uh, space capsule environments that include the planet so that we have to be so much involved in our own planetary forces and gravitations and so on that we can simulate it. The old idea of participation in natural forces was by simulation. The tribal dancing and so on was done by mimicry of the natural forces in order to control them. Well, that's what modern science does. Modern science mimics nature in all its levels in order to control nature. It mimics gravitation now in order to create a capsule environment. But in mimicking nature, we create environments, man-made environments, that are far more potent than nature ever was. And that's our new problem. We have, I suppose it's the old sorcerer and the, uh, and the apprentices, that sort of thing. The Frankenstein monster. We have created a man-made environment that's far more powerful than nature. And uh, we, we have to uh, obey it in the sense of participating in it in order to control it. The, you know, the price we pay for our own technology is obedience to our own technology. Well, I mean, we are the servo mechanisms. Uh, you see, if you make a canoe, the paddler of the canoe becomes not the master, but the servo mechanism of the canoe. And so if you, in the same way you make a business, the man who runs the business is the servo mechanism of the business. Every technology exacts that price of conformity from the user. And now our technologies become worldwide, well, they, the tyranny of them becomes equal to that. Uh, sir? What was, the, what was the question? Would you repeat that again into the mic? Do you think we'd be better off without our technology then? Do you think we'd be better off without the technology, without the problems the technology presents? Well, Do you think we'd be uh, this is off? like the mosquito and not, uh, yeah. in the nudist colony, not <laughs> knowing where to begin. Which of, the te which of the technologies would you choose to get rid of first? Clothing? Speech? Maybe speech was the first great mistake that man made. <laughs> As a technology, it uh, may have been the ruin. Because prior to speech, there's, uh, there's some reason to suppose that people uh, communicated by ESP and had total empathy with each other without the fragmentary character of articulation. Well, 
so maybe speech was a great mistake. All right, now I'd like to ask you one other question. That is, what new trends in thought do you think your ideas are going to create? Do you think your ideas are going to be somewhat revolutionary? I, I don't want any trends in thought to result from my ideas. I just want people to start noticing the world they live in. I don't want any systems. I don't want any new, uh, new, uh, new philosophies. I just want people to notice what's happening in the world they actually live in. I, I want percepts, not concepts. No, no let's just try some more. There are three or four. as our people are today. Well, um, I was meditating on that theme recently, and it occurred to me I, that it's quite likely that the O.K. Moore method of reading by teaching you know, children by the age of two to read and write on typewriters, illumination, sound effects, it may be that in 10 years those children will show none of the um, characteristic forms of literate behavior at all. That is that people learning to read in this way will not really be literate in our old superficial sense. The great advantage of literacy is it creates a very humane and civilized and urbane superficial type of person. The new electric technology will not permit us to be superficial. It demands depth of understanding and depth of involvement and commitment on all things, on all fronts, uh, which is not civilized. It is not literate. It is not superficial. And it's so the new depth techniques and so on may be quite incompatible with civilization. I, I mean, I'll leave that as an open question because I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm very curious to know what's going to happen to these kids who are taught by the O.K. Moore method of, to read and write by the age of two. You know, I you know the, uh, the Great Books program uh, has produced a lot of people, but uh, did you ever meet one? That is Annapolis College. Maryland. I met one the other day and I asked him, I was I, first in, in what, 25 years, the first person I ever met who uh, had the uh, Great Books program. He said, one of the peculiarities of, of us as a group of people is that we are almost inarticulate. We've never written anything or said anything as a group or as individuals ever since we had the course. That's why you never hear of them. But what, I'm curious, what is there about the St. John's program that causes this, uh, this result? Uh, I'm most interested in uh, the St. John's program, but he volunteered this information. I didn't know this. It may not even be true, but he volunteered this, uh, this observation that we're inarticulate as a group. We have about one minute left on the tape. May I just take them, sir, asking just one last question, and I think we'd like to thank Professor Marshall McLuhan for offering us his, his insights, and as he says, making us think and observe who and what we are now. Last question, Professor McLuhan, and not asked uh, with any sense of levity, maybe, maybe, the fact you speak of something of the past obsolete becoming an art form, whether it's a beaded lampshade or whether oh. it's a, a western or town. Or Rembrandt. Or Rembrandt. Do you think that we, the human race, will become an art form one day? You think we, uh, we come now to the key question, don't we? As, uh, Where are we going? <laughs> well, here are these UFOs kicking around, uh, having a look at us as uh, quaint objects, art forms. Um, <laughs> the, um, yes, I think it's entirely possible that this uh, could be fall. On that note of gaiety and laughter, 
And we say thank you very much, Professor Marshall McLuhan. <laughs>